Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. This is the podcast that shows you how wellbeing touches every part of your life. You're getting into some of these really detailed tweaks and hacks that you can do with nutrition to really superpower people into another stratosphere to take you from somewhere to this other place, this place of black and white movies to this place of colour. How can good nutrition drive business performance? That question is right at the heart of Kate Cook's philosophy. Kate is a nutrition and wellness expert who's helped thousands of people adopt a healthier lifestyle from her Harley Street clinic. She's the author of several books, including the Corporate Wellness Bible. Over the last 10 years, her focus has been on delivering corporate well-being programs. In this episode of Health to Wealth, you'll hear why nutrition is so important to business performance. And you'll also hear why strategic eating is more effective than healthy eating. Kate, there's a dizzying array of approaches on how best to eat. How did food get so complicated? Well, I mean, food is what I call really tribal nowadays, which in my book means that everybody claims to have the best way of eating and we're omnivores, so we eat everything. So it's this idea that we should be narrowed down into the correct way of eating. And I think that sells a lot of books for people. I think there is a functional way of eating sometimes that does deliver optimum performance. But the general tenet is that we should eat real food, balance the blood sugar for sure, which means balancing the energy in, the, in, in our bodies. And also we should always kind of have a little bit of sense of humor around food and a lightness around food instead of a mania about food. We miss the big picture of this, which is another tenant, I suppose, which is about the community of eating together. I mean, in effect, it's the company that eats together stays together. And I think that's a really important thing. And that's why the company restaurant is still a very important feature, I think, of how we look at food within the corporate environment. The other tenant is actually what I call the North Star of nutrition, which is balancing hormones as opposed to balancing calories, which has been the great dominant conversation in the West for probably 50 years. So it's, it's about this idea of blood sugar is the major influence we want to control, and that is influenced by insulin. So insulin is what we're controlling through strategic diet. And on, on that note of corporate environment, Kate, tell me about the link between good nutrition and business performance. Nutrition is the foundation, obviously, of everything, all well-being is the foundation in, in nutrition and good nutrition and knowing what the rules of food is. Because as I say, I think to your previous question, it's so confusing. And of course, that affects performance. One construction company I work with, one of the leaders took their, the team of 15 out for lunch every single day. And his team was the best performance in the whole company was that team. So although he was spending out his team was the best in the, in the whole company. You know, I don't think that was a coincidence, although, of course, you can't measure that that was the difference. I wasn't involved in this, actually, regretfully, but the Olympics, when they were hosted in Britain, and they introduced a porridge programme into the Olympic construction programme, in effect, because they were having small, what they call manual handling accidents. It immediately ceased. So getting better concentration, 
getting the workers on a good breakfast. That might be an extreme example, but what you get is a, an absolute example of how introducing a food program into, a, into something like that can immediately eliminate actually something that's a danger. Kate, you've talked about the foundation stones of good food, potent nutrition. You also mentioned a moment ago the rules of eating. What are those rules as you see them? Well, the rules, you know, the easy way when I'm teaching nutrition, base it around the foundation of this blood sugar control and it loosely based on the glycemic index, which is a kind of description of how fast food burns within the system. So if you can imagine that sugar is going to burn really quickly, the blood sugar rises very, very steeply. And that hormone we've been talking about, insulin, comes in, lowers the sugar in the blood. And at the bottom of the curve, if you like, the roller coaster, and you're sort of searching out for something to nibble on or a cup of tea to raise your energy levels, and up goes the blood sugar again. And um, the insulin comes in, lowers the sugar in the blood. So you get a roller coaster effect of blood sugar in the system. Now, it's really complicated, uh, glycemic index, and there's something also called glycemic load. So the simple way of the rules of food, if you like, is number one, avoid things that are sweet, fluffy and white. Sweet, fluffy and white things pick up and drop the blood sugar. So sweet is anything you put in your mouth. Fluffy is the density of something like popcorn uh, and also how it looks. So, for example, white rice is kind of fluffy and potato, mashed potato is kind of fluffy. So if you don't want your blood sugar to be wobbly, then don't eat those things. And white, likely, is things that are processed by and large. And what you do need to be doing is going back to eating things that are what I call thick, fibrous protein fat. So the thickness is the density. Fibrous is things covered in skin. Protein, well, we all know what that is, but we're going to dump the vegetarian protein in here. And fat, so fat is things like butter, things like coconut oil and olive oil with moderation, those kind of things. Fat, saturated fat actually is back. So yeah, so that's what you're aiming for is thick fibrous protein fat. So that's the rule of the food, if you like. That's balancing insulin because um, it is stabilizing the way that we metabolize glucose within the body. But as I say, it's in, in the nutrition specifically, we have a problem, which is you can't force people to eat what you would want them to eat. But as I say, you know, you only have to look at the evidence outside a corporation, any evidence which is to do with looking at nutrition as the foundation for health in terms of inflammatory disease and critical disease and energy and, you know, diabetes and all the problems we have in the Western world, which actually just really impact people's insurance and companies. We have to educate people to really make sure that they, you know, everybody pulls their finger out on this one and really sees that nutrition is the foundation, but you cannot kind of, you can leave horses to water, but you've got to make them drink. You know, that is the point. Let's expand on what Kate's talking about here, about the difficulty of motivating people to eat more healthily. That's something you'll hear more about in another episode of Health to Wealth with Ollie Patrick. Ollie is a clinical physiologist who works with corporates, hospitality and individuals to deliver wellness programmes. Here's Ollie's take on the challenges that both employers and governments face when it comes to managing people's health. I think anyone at the top of an organisation will feel a duty of care for, for their people, but they'll also be held accountable to the numbers that are recorded. It's a great challenge because we have a glowing, you know, diabetes crisis, this combination of obesity 
with development of type 2 diabetes, which is an enormous drain on any global nation's healthcare resources. We know if people move more, there's, a, there's an impact on health costs. We know if people nourish better, there's an impact on health costs. We know if people sleep better, there's an impact on health costs. So we know that it's there, but we can't mathematically prove it in the same way as I can prove that building a new hospital will impact on the healthcare of my nation. We also have this enormously difficult piece from a leadership point of view, which is I have to motivate everyone on an individual basis to change. To take someone who's not yet dysfunctional to a higher state of functionality, as in true prevention, requires them to, to be motivated to do so. That's a great conundrum. So it's tough. It's not easy to persuade people to eat the right things. And it's also difficult to measure the effectiveness of a wellness program, including a nutrition program at work. Measuring effectiveness is complex. If you're the CEO of a large company, you may want data on whether a nutrition program is going to improve productivity. There are stats out there that show this. For example, just a 1% drop in hydration could lead to a 12% drop in productivity. However, what's difficult is measuring the complexity of personal choices, because as you've already heard, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. What it's fundamentally about is well-being culture in business. But at the same time, as you've heard from both Ollie and Kate, you can hear that there are huge benefits too, such as the porridge program for construction workers on the Olympic Village. What a great example. But what is it about the healthy eating message particularly that isn't getting through? As you'll hear for Kate, that has a very long history and it's partly about the impact that early industrialization has had on our communities, particularly in the UK and in the US. This is a big one, Annie. I think it's a wider societal problem. But the, the main thing it comes back to is building strong communities. And you can build those communities in work, which leads to this good food culture or, or a good culture generally. It doesn't really need to be about food, actually, but it needs to be about that human connection, that bonding person to person. It's a very visceral thing, nutrition. I think, especially in England and America specifically, we have this kind of you know, an, an addictive food, you know, that a sausage roll and chips uh, is, is actually something that, you know, and a beer is kind of like what people crave for if they've had a really hard day. I mean, I don't speak for myself on that one. But, you know, people are craving for this food that will pick and drop their blood sugar. You know, it's all to do with the biochemistry, actually. It's addictive food. In effect, it's a drug. You know, all food acts as an opiate or some food acts as an opiate in the system. So it's, it's the, about the availability of food, the cheapness of the food, and the way that, especially in America and England, we don't have that kind of visceral connection. It's, is it cheap? Is it functional? You know, and maybe that's to do with their early industrialization. You know, so it's, I think it's complicated. How would you steward a more potent nutrition program in a corporate? Talk me through the stages you would, you would take everyone through. So we always look at the nutrition through the lens of other issues. So it's never really a nutrition program on its own. For example, I work for a construction company. What became very obvious for them was they just getting terrible sleep. Nobody's sleeping within the whole company, you know, which becomes very obvious. First of all, from a questionnaire based pre-check, if you like, so you know where to focus, but also in talking to the people the mini consultations we do, you're able to identify immediately as a common strand throughout the company. 
So in effect, it's a cultural thing that they're doing um, all together. We use two tools of measurement, and it's quite nice, first of all, to use a questionnaire-based uh, methodology. And the questionnaire-based methodology that we use has been verified as something that feeds back accurate information. So it's quite a well-studied instrument that we use. And it's looking at quite a lot of different factors that make up what we might call resilience. So it's looking at things like sleep, it's looking at things like exercise, it looks at things like diet and all of those things. And of course, that all plays into the nutrition story as well. Exercise is an important part of nutrition because you need to transport the nutrients around the body and you do that with movement. So it's all tied up with nutrition. So we look at quite a lot of different components of uh, resilience within that questionnaire. Quite often for a company, because it's very reasonable, that test, looking at that and understanding how your people are. I mean, sometimes people in companies do something what they call a pulse check. And the pulse check is just saying, so how are you feeling today? Which is rubbish because, of course, people always say they feel fantastic because they don't want to look vulnerable, especially to bosses. But this is a way, actually, that A, the individual can benefit and B, actually, the company can benefit because the data is being fed in back to the company in a, a, an anonymized way. So, so it's we, a subjective questionnaire. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it is totally subjective. But I think that's the point with well-being anyway, which is, is it is subjective. If you feel good, you probably are good. But yes, but, you know, if you feel bad, then the company sh kind of should know about that. And they know what, you know, they, you can often see patterns emerging within that, as I said. And the second measurement we use is a more detailed uh, form, which is the heart rate variability device, which is looking at the recovery of the heart between the beats. So it's not one of those running devices. It's actually quite a sensitive measurement. It's looking at a part of our um, nervous system that we probably don't see every single day. So it's hidden from us. And so it's a very much more detailed um, precision instrument, if you like. So it's absolutely bi biochemical in feedback, if you like. And uh, with that, it, it means that the individual can be absolutely coached because you can see within their heart rate variability results what habits are not contributing to their performance. So then we can go backwards and sort of look at the strategies we might put in. Yes, it's going to be nutritional, but it's going to also be cultural. Thank you for listening to Health to Wealth from Accor. This podcast is supported by Technogym, a brand that's all about helping you improve your lifestyle and your performance. 30 years ago, Technogym defined wellness as a lifestyle, including regular exercise, healthy nutrition and a positive mental approach. They develop products and technologies to make exercise more inclusive and effective for everyone. They're at the cutting edge of high performance technology and on a mission to improve your health and the health of the planet through the spirit of Technogym. What I'm hearing is, is you do an audit. Through that audit, you do a SWOT analysis. You then, based on the results of that, you design a program, uh, a bespoke program. Yeah, for exactly. That, for that company. You then integrate and deliver that program. Yeah. So, for example, in, in leadership programs, like with a, a C-suite, we may get much more into the detailed work for example, using the HRV, the heart rate variability monitor. So we might get into that. 
because the, that is a very specific way that we can then coach people specifically, that person, uh, in other words, to transform their nutrition through that coaching process. But for the, for the ordinary, you know, for, for the ordinary Joe in the company, we're talking quite broad brushstrokes themes, really, because most people are, are really far away from the picture of mitochondrial health. It's about so many different things, not just for the performance of the individual, you know, to get something out of them. It's for themselves. So I always say to people, you know, you get into the company, you give your all, but actually what kind of life do you have if you get out of the company at six o'clock and you're so knackered that all you want to do is loaf on a sofa and watch TV and smoke fags and have a, a glass of wine or something. You know, obviously there's, there's a time for that. But, you know, you don't want to live your life like that. You know, most people go through their life, actually, feeling less than 100%. People, you know, they're tired, they're not getting enough sleep. They're suboptimal. With a foundation of nutrition, and, and by the way, it's a very detailed thing, nutrition. So it isn't just, by the way, about the blood sugar. You know, we can get into the much more fancy footwork of nutrition, which is, it sounds like a big word, but we look at mitochondrial health, which is basically cell energy. So you're getting into some of these really detailed tweaks and hacks that you can do with nutrition to really superpower people into another stratosphere to take you from somewhere to this other place, this place of, of kind of like black and white movies to this place of color. So it's this incredible awakening, not only energetically, but all sorts of other ways as well. So that's why I say it's really uh, unmeasurable in that sense. And it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of us won't really think of ourselves as the people who eat processed food. And everybody comes to see a nutritionist. And you'll think, actually, you do think clinically when people come to clinic, they say, actually, I have quite a healthy diet. That's how everybody starts the conversation. <laughs> like, why are you coming to a nutritionist then if you think you have a healthy diet in a sweet way? So everybody kind of has this impression of what it is they're doing in nutritionally and think it's the right thing to be doing. But actually, as I said, with a few kind of like rules of food and guidance and reigniting the passion around food and how that matters, you know, not only for ourselves, actually, but for the planet and for all sorts of other reasons, it's really important to realize that's the foundation rather than putting the tweaks in after the event, if you see what I mean. So definitely it is before absolute performance. What are the differences you notice, Kate, in the work that you've done to date, in the businesses, the countless businesses that you've worked with, from when you've gone in, you've done that audit, you've done your work, what do you observe a few months later, a year later, or whatever that time limit is? Well, some of it is, is hard benefit and some of it's really soft benefit. And uh, the soft benefit, the approach that we have, I have, once we've done the audit, once we know the problem is sleep or whatever, then people will come and do these mini consultations. So we are able to then measure as we go, if you like, differences. So we keep a track through the questionnaire that we use. We can see and look at the difference. But sometimes it is a soft benefit, which is that the people coming in feel that the company has taken care of them and they feel that they've been listened to. So it's quite difficult in a way to measure that in black and white. For example, I worked with um, a rail company Things like, you know, somebody tapping me on the shoulder and saying, listen, thank you. I was able to go out for the first time because he had awful psoriasis all over his body. 
But, you know, in putting even some really simple things in place, he was being able to sort of just live his life. You know, and I've also gone to companies and just said, do you know what, I think you should measure your vitamin D because they're getting terrible anxiety. Take some vitamin D according to that dose. And, you know, then again, tap on the shoulder and saying, listen, it's transformed my life. If you can look at this whole totality of what we're measuring, we're measuring in terms of resilience, actually, sort of lots of different factors in terms of resilience, then you can see the changes. And it's so wonderful and exciting to see those changes. So we can go from the very detailed work with the C-suite, as they say, which we can do, uh, and we do do on occasions, but people really have to be passionately into the nutrition. And again, another construction company, who knew? Uh, an Australian one, actually, very, very, very into this and knowing the difference that performance, especially through nutrition, can make, really do this detailed work. But other companies are really just not there yet with the mentality uh, of, the, uh, of knowing that nutrition is at the bottom of this well-being aisle, if you like. Let's reflect on some of those softer benefits to companies that Kate has been talking about. Both Kate and physiologist Ollie Patrick, who you heard from earlier, point towards the fact that in some ways it can be difficult to measure the benefits of corporate well-being and nutrition programs. But as Kate has already established, food is such a visceral experience that it can really bind people together. As Kate says, the company that eats together stays together. Hearing Kate discussing the importance of community around food reminds me of the work that Sasha Celestial Wan talks about in another episode of Health to Wealth. Sasha is the co-founder of an app called Olio. Olio helps you share your waste food with people around you who might want it or need it. For Sasha, it's easy to understand why you might want to form a community around food. Let's hear her take on this. When we first started out, we did quite a bit of market research, which we backed up with YouGov polls, etc., and, you know, more than a third of people will say that they feel physically pained when they throw away food that is edible or was very recently edible. Our personal well-being is being impacted by us letting something of value go to waste. That goes against every survival instinct in our body. And that just doesn't feel good. It feels very unsettling. And we're very hardwired not to enjoy wasting something in that way. And conversely, giving something of value to another human, we are hardwired to get um, an energy and a, an actual chemical boost from because that's how we keep our species alive. So I think it's only in the last you know 40 or 50 years that we've lost what is really something that's as old as humankind, which is, is sharing. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it simple, easy and fun to do something that we've always been doing and we've just forgotten how to do. For Sasha and for people who use Olio, sharing directly feeds into their sense of well-being. And that's backed up by the fact that Olio has 80,000 volunteers around the world who work together to make food sharing through the app as easy as possible. People who are working for free to establish a community around food. I wonder whether the dialogue around this subject has changed much in companies down the years. As you'll hear, for Kate, the needle has definitely moved since she started her career. Well, it's definitely moved since I've been doing this, 22 years actually presenting in companies. So the story about the blood sugar and things like that was really big news then. Things have changed. So, you know, I was just doing um, something yesterday for an accountancy company. And, you know, they were talking about fasting and intermittent fasting. And, 
and that fasting for women often sometimes isn't the thing actually you can do a few little hacks in there for, for women you know they're at that detailed knowledge was 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that absolutely was not there at all. So the knowledge has changed. In the last, I think, probably seven years, the appetite for nutrition has changed. People get, do get it a lot more. In companies, it's interesting because people go for now, you know, and quite rightly, there's a lot of uh, emphasis on mental health, which is completely the right thing in many ways, except that the root cause of that mental ill health is not identified. And also I would slightly argue with the title mental health because there are a lot of people who are and do have serious mental health problems like schizophrenia, really severe depression. But the rest of us, I'd like to call it emotional health because it's really ordinary people reacting to quite honestly extraordinary circumstances and doing their best to cope with that. So in what we do in balancing the blood sugar, somebody is much more likely to be much more emotionally stable uh, with a foundation of the biochemistry, either nutrition or what nutrition can give you perfectly balanced. Kate, if I was a CEO of a very large company, hundreds if not thousands of staff, what would be the benefit to the business for all of those employees dialing up their nutritional potency well, I think it's incalculable. I mean, actually, I know that sounds a very vague and flippant answer, but, you know, I did a whole series for a bank, a big bank on cognitive decline. So looking at actually mental capacity through inflammation of the brain and all of these things. Just now I'm doing a series on happiness. That's what they want to concentrate on, especially after what we've all been through for the last two years. They want to concentrate on, on something much more light and fluffy, and, but again, that can all be measured. You know, it can be measured. And um, that's just where they want to concentrate. So, you know, and, and sometimes it depends on, on leadership. So, it's, you know, it's getting into the C-suite because if you don't have that cultural, it's like a piece of Brighton rock. If you don't have that writing throughout the company, then it is a very tick box exercise. But they're not really embedded in it. You know, it's fun and it's great and it's, we have a good time. But it isn't really trained changing anything strategically, which I think, by the way, is a problem with well-being in companies or has a capacity to be like that for all programs within companies. Unless you audit it, you won't know what you're looking for. And unless you measure it, you won't know if you've been successful. But there are still a huge chunk of companies who don't do either of those things. So, so as I was saying, the C-suite is an important part. Are they just introducing something, you know, for fun? And that there's, and by the way, there's, there's huge merit in that. We, are we nice people? We're going to do this fun nutrition thing or we're going to get this crazy lady in to do a bit of nutrition. Uh, or it can be much more strategic. They're looking, you know, they're, they're basically auditing the issue, um, then uh, putting in the program and then measuring it afterwards. And, and then it can be people going straight to the C-suite and coaching those people to, to care about the performance nutrition in effect, making a difference, them seeing that they can be transformed, switching on a light which says this should be taken throughout the company. And, and once you've got that culture in, it's much easier to get the whole company embedded within it. Inspiring people to have healthy diets, inspiring them on the nutrition can turn on something amazing and wonderful within the company, which we can measure. So, you know, what's not to like? Gosh, thanks, Kate. That's as compelling as it gets. 
So to sum up, in some ways, it can be difficult to measure an increase in productivity due to nutrition, but you can measure an individual's personal response to a wellness program. It can be tough to persuade people to eat healthily, but if a wellness culture is fostered right from the top, then it's much more likely to succeed. And to quote Kate, the company that eats together stays together. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth, a series created by Accor. Episodes on how you can help solve the climate crisis through sharing food, the future of tech, and an insight into the Wim Hof method from the man himself are all available now. Please rate, review, and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyaccor.com.